Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am here with a superpower team of hivers. I have Molly Jong Fast. I've got Emily Jane Fox. I've got Gabe Sherman. I'm Joe Hagan. Let's get right into it. Insta reaction on the morning after the red wave that didn't happen. Molly, what do you got to say? A red puddle. I mean, mm. they, you know, they may keep the house. Congratulations, team. I mean, I think the top line is like bad night for Donald Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Bad night for, you know, Kevin McCarthy, maybe speaker. But like we're already hearing that there's going to that there are other people. You could see Steve Scalise. I mean, just a bad night for those guys. Probably, um, you know, a really good night for the Biden White House and a really good night for um, democracy. A lot of these election deniers have lost or are in the process of, you know, losing. And so especially in those states which would have been needed to certify uh, in 24, the candidates that Trump was hoping to install, almost all of them lost. So I think that's good news. I'll uh, I'll add to that a very good night for Ron DeSantis. A bad night for Trump is a good night for DeSantis, given that you know, this is the shadow primary for 2024. Um, and I'm already hearing this morning from people that, you know, Trump is furious and that, um, you know, DeSantis is basically saying, I told you so. So, um, you know, I'll be very curious to see two things. One, how Trump spins it, which I already predict he'll say the under they underperform because he wasn't on the ballot and exactly. only he can get people to the polls. And B, I'll be interested to see whether he sticks to his July, uh, November 14th announcement that he's running. It's so fascinating because I, I saw so many people. I don't really go on Twitter anymore, but last night I was on Twitter, and now I realize why I don't go on it anymore. Um, but, but last night you saw a lot of people who are very smart, who have a lot of followers saying, you know, what this really seems like is that if Trump's not on the ticket, then Trump doesn't matter. But if Trump's on the ticket, then Trump matters. But they seem to forget that he lost in 2020 and what happened in the, in the 2018 election. Trump was, was on the ballot uh, and he was in power in those years, and there was, you know, uh, the election results were, were what they were. Uh, Gabe, as the, I feel like the resident DeSantis expert in the world, do you, I mean, he I was a I don't know if you be proud of that or not. But. Uh, well, it's, it's going to be useful whether or not you're proud of it. Do, you know, do I think he's running? Is that well, the question? He was, he was unequivocally the kingmaker last night. I think that every Republican feels a... Uh, is is indebted to him right now, right? He he is the reason why mm-hmm. they may hold on to the house if they hold on to the house. Uh, what does that mean for him? What does that look like for him? Well, listen, I think two things. One, it is a you know undeniably a huge night for him. We saw like last week, Ken Griffin, GOP mega donor, come out to say that he's with Ron in twenty four. So all the cards, all the stars, however you want to say it, are lining up 
in his direction. You know, I think the biggest challenge is that if he runs, he can't announce for, you know, I want to say a good six months because, you know, he can't get reelected as governor and then in January say, just kidding, I'm running for president. So, Hmm. you know, I predict if he does run, we'll see a, you know, early summer, late spring announcement. Secondly, I keep hearing from DeSantis world that, you know, his strategy is just to sit back and let Trump implode, whether it's, you know, indictments or, you know, more out of the January 6th committee. I mean, whatever the case is, DeSantis has everything to gain just by sitting back and letting letting it play out because Trump seems to be his own worst enemy. Um, so I think, you know, we'll be talking about this for months, but I don't expect any hard news out of DeSantis' world immediately. I just want to say, I want to back up here for just one minute because last night when I went to bed at midnight, I was still in a state of, you know, this is going to go south, right? You Joe, can, should we revisit our text exchange at like mm-hmm. 11 o'clock? Yeah, I was just, I had gone full negative. Wow. Joe was basically, Joe was basically forecasting the end of America that yeah. all the Trumpers were going to win. The Democrats were forever destined to be losers. And mm-hmm. uh, I was like, ready to just like open up the third bottle of bourbon and just mm-hmm. drink myself <laughs> under. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my friend um, uh, Ryan Walsh on Twitter I saw this morning was saying he's going to try to get a refund on his cyanide pills that he had ordered. <laughs> but I, I, I have to say, thinking about last week's podcast, um, Molly and Emily, we were here, we were talking about, did these polls mean anything? You know, are they and we were saying, no, you know, nobody really knows. And once again, polls have been proven to be bullshit or like 50 50, which is flip a coin. Right. And I think it's interesting to note that we had this theory and people have been talking about there were a lot of right leaning polls. There were less independent Mm -hmm. polls out there. And there was a sense of like false momentum being created from the right. And, you know, it backfired because when you think about. Uh, which, and I also want to give props to Joe Biden. He came out and he said, this is about democracy. And a lot of people in the you know, pundit community were like, oh, mm-hmm. this is a bad take. This is a bad take. Well, no, it wasn't. You know, in a way, it was a brilliant take because if the momentum seemed to be going towards the Republicans and he's putting that warning out, well, it drove the base on the left. It drove Democrats to the polls. It drove women to the polls. People responded to that, Right. And in a way, uh, I, we don't know what, you know, yes, Republicans are going to get some extra power in Congress. And it's not like some kind of, um, you know, super victory for Democrats. They don't hold all the power, but they hold enough power so that Merrick Garland isn't going to come under some kind of like congressional pressure or get driven out by, you know, maniacs on the and from the Trump side of the GOP. I mean, that yeah. Can I just add – I think that actually um, this was a huge victory for Democrats. I mean, if you think about it, inflation is high. It's high everywhere. But gas prices are high. Biden is polling back. You know, he's unpopular. So the wind was, I mean, part of why so many pundits thought Democrats were going to get shellacked was because it was a really bad environment for them. Mm-hmm. And almost always the midterms are a referendum on the, incum- on the incumbent party, which is the Democrats. And they controlled all three chambers. And I think this is actually a huge victory for them because, you know, we were seeing 20 seats, 30 seats, 40 seats. 
uh, Kevin McCarthy, the biggest loser, maybe not the biggest loser, the second biggest loser of the night, said uh, last year that that the House is going to get that Republicans are going to win 60 seats. So and remember, there's like extreme gerrymandering. So you have to I mean, I actually think this was a huge victory for Democrats. And it shows really that like Trumpism doesn't scale. And so I do think like, you know, and this is the third. The other one last thing I would say is that this is a third election cycle where Trump has underperformed. Right. He got creamed in his 2018 midterms. He lost in 2020 and he got creamed in 22. So, like, the question is, if you're the Republican Party, you have to ask yourself, like, we are running with a loser on the top of the ticket. What are we going to do? There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. It's so interesting. I want to come back to the Trump of it all because it's the thing that's looming both in terms of calendar and also just in terms of message. But before we get there, Molly, I think you're you're totally right. And I think, I forget who said it yesterday, but someone said, after tonight, the Democrats really have to come together and, and put together a message. And we need to like really figure out who our, what our message is. And I actually don't think that they had a message and I don't think that it mattered. And so my question for all of you is, do Democrats need a message if Trumpism is still around or is it enough of a rallying cry to be able to just get away with the fact that they're running in opposition to something? Listen, I think the problem with, I think what neutralizes whether or not they come up with a message is the fact that Republicans don't have a message. I mean, I I saw several takes last night that that seemed on, which is that the only thing Republicans said is that you know, inflation's high and crime is bad, right? I mean, that's obvious. Pointing out the problems are not rocket science. But they had no prescriptions. You know, their plan, what, to cut taxes? They tried that in the UK. Liz Truss tried that, right? And you saw, like, basically their entire economy unravel in a week. So I don't think voters necessarily trust the Republicans with, with you know, handing them the reins of power because they're not offering a real alternative. So, you know, I think that blunts some of the problem with whether the Democrats have a message beyond, you know, Trump is the end of the world. Um, but, you know, I think going into 24, you know, I think probably, you know, th- it, there's no harm in you can do both. I guess my feeling is you can walk and chew gum, right? You can point out that, you know, Trump would be the end of the world and this is what we're going to do. Yeah, I would say that the Democrats did have a message, but they had a lot of them. But one of them, they had a lot of them. They didn't have one big one, but they had a lot of them. And one of the big, most important ones was that if you keep us in power, we're going to uh, make abortion legal on the federal level. Not only did the Republicans not have solutions, just critiques. And by the way, they had these horrible candidates. I mean, I think, you know, normal, middle-of-the-road suburban voters out in America, when they think about you know, putting Marjorie Taylor Greene in like the, you know, head of the house, right? When they hear stuff like that, I don't think that they're really jazzed about it, you know? And the the quality of the candidates on the GOP side were so abysmal that they finally, you know, had to make a pragmatic decision. 
I would also say that there's a fair there was a fair amount of conservative wish casting, right? Mm-hmm. Like when the Dobbs decision came down, we immediately saw pieces from conservative pundits saying like abortion is no longer the wedge issue. I mean, Sarah Ingers Flores for for Politico uh, opinion saying abortion is no longer the wedge issue. They Mm -hmm. said it would be, you know, you saw um, Chris Christie. I was just about to say Chris Christie telling a bunch of women that that people don't care about abortion anymore. So, I mean, they knew when Dobbs came down, Roberts, just as John Roberts, like said, you know, this is not the hill you want to die on. And those three Trumpy justices were like, no, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I also woke up to this morning um, was the clearest sign I've seen yet that the entire Murdoch empire is basically done with Trump and they are working overtime to you know, make DeSantis the face of the party. If you look at the New York Post this morning, you know, the the, the headline on the wood is the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you had Fox News, Carl Rove on Fox last night, shilling for DeSantis saying that this is, you know, a huge, you know, margin of victory in Florida. So, you know, whether that actually breaks through to the base is, is you know, obviously a question. But, you know, the, the entire apparatus, the power structure of the party, whether it's the donors or the media is trying to turn the page from Trump. I just got a text, and, and it's in this line from a Republican in the know who used to be in Trump's camp and has abandoned, and it's a meme, and it's Trump in a car looking out the window, and the meme says, get in, loser, we're going losing. Uh, and I think that that <laughs> is a good uh, bellwether for where people who were, were very firmly in Trump's camp and are no longer are this morning. From from our reporting and our reading, we know that Trump is on the precipice of announcing potentially as soon as next week. Um, I don't know if today changes his calculation. Part of me, as someone who's thought about a lot how he thinks, thinks that maybe this speeds up his announcing because his ego is wounded mm-hmm. and narcissists can't mm-hmm. take a wounded ego. What do we feel about that prospect now, Molly? I think it's going to get really ugly mm. because you already saw, right, Trump was saying it's desanctimonious, which, by the way, I, I know we talked about this, but is amazing. Um, but uh, I think it's going to get ugly because even, you know, he's talking about his marriage, you know, Trump is talking about DeSantis's marriage. I mean, I think, look, you know, now you're you're set up for a showdown here. You've got the donor class. And the Murdochs, you know, in te- on Team DeSantis, you've got this like the Bannon wing and the 4chan people on Team Trump. I think this is going to be a showdown. And and I think that, you know, this kind of primary fight is not good for the Republican Party, which mm-hmm. is delightful to me. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that um, Molly's totally right. I think we saw in 16, we had, you know, Jeb Bush and you know, Rubio. And we had, you know, sort of the fissures in the party were between, you know, the populist um, Trump base and the establishment. I think what makes it so much more complicated this time for them, and will be fun for Democrats to watch, is essentially DeSantis and Trump are fighting over the same voters, right? I mean, DeSantis has positioned himself as Trump without the insanity. So it's not the clear binary between, you know, base and establishment. So, you know, it's sort of a zero sum. I mean, I think they're just going to be stealing, you know, fighting each other for the same voters, which is 
you know, all downside. I don't see, you know, I don't see it being such a clear cut case where Trump has the base and the sort of country club Republicans are with um, DeSantis. Right. Gabe, I have two questions. The first is, what are the skeletons that Trump's going to pull out of his closet as someone who spent a lot of time probably trying to find them? And uh, well, I'll start there and I'll get to my second one. Well, I was talking with uh, a Trumper the other day who was saying, I asked that very question, and they, you know, winked and nod and teased that um, Adam Putnam, who was the GOP um, candidate for governor in 2018, when DeSantis ran in the primary, apparently, you know, Adam Putnam's team had, quote, incredible oppo on DeSantis that they never used that is now in the hands of Trumpers. <sighs> but- Alas, they were saving it because they said, why, why would we give DeSantis, you know, six months to prepare? But, you know, clearly there's something. Right. But there's also a chance they're just full of shit. Yeah, Excuse of course. my French. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. We welcome your French. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. And I'm glad we're on this subject of inter-GOP combat on the horizon because I feel like we should move into the schadenfreude uh, section of this podcast because, Molly, uh, you've been uh, posting up the reactions on Fox News. The vast. Which are simply um, beautiful, really. They, they brought a tear to my eye. Um, but, uh, you know, they really – they can't cope. They can't – they didn't understand. They, it was like they were taking their own hype and they believed yeah. their own hype. I mean, the lesson for all of us in the pundit world, I think, is that we can't get high on our own supply, right? Like, I mean, I had Lawrence on my podcast and he was like, I'm not going to pundit. I'm not going to horse race. I'm not going to – I don't trust any polls. I saw what happened in 1994. And I think, like, you know, there's a feeling you don't want to be wrong. So you don't want to go on a show when people are saying to you, you know, oh, it's going to be this and it's going to be that. And it's so there's so much, you know, there was a kind of baked in even for me. You know, I thought for sure I had seen those last five specials as being a Democratic win. So I thought, you know, I think Democrats are going to overperform because we're seeing women turn out. And we had saw all this voter registration, but I was like almost scared to say it because I didn't want to sound like an idiot. So I do think, you know, there's a fair amount of that. I would also say, like, it's a bad day to work at Real Clear Politics or Trafalgar. Like, they really flooded the zone with those polls. You know, they had things like New Hampshire was going to, you know, have a, you know, Don Bullock is going to be the new senator from New Hampshire. I mean, some farcical stuff. So don't trust mm. polls. Yeah. Well, it's a, a yet another example also, you know, we talk about the anxiety, is that 
you know, Democrats, instead of like uh, wish casting, as you said, they sort of like um, death cast. Their, they are constantly um, predicting their own demise against their better, you know, uh, kind of uh, fortunes. But um, let me ask, the: do we know, let's just catch up with what is the latest, what we know about what this is all going to hinge on now. You know, we're looking at just like a handful of states where it could be days or weeks before we know the final outcome. Well, clearly Uh, Arizona and Georgia are the two sort of hinge points, right? I mean, we have, it looks like by all accounts, um, Georgia's heading towards a runoff. So regardless, you know, we won't know until December who's going to control the Senate. That runoff is going to be insane. I mean, that is going to be an insane time to be in Georgia, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. just bat another, you know, bat shit. Sorry, excuse me. No, no, it's going to be bat shit. Yeah. Let me echo the bat shit part. (laughs) Well, and you're talking about two states that were, you know, the most contested. This is where the election denial, you know, hotbeds of election denial and mm-hmm. kind of voter, you know, paranoia uh, and freakism uh, going on in these two places. And I'm wondering, can Trump, you know, really get involved in that again? Is he just going to keep tripling down on this and trying to push that as a as a way to kind of like reanimate his popularity uh, with the base? I mean, I can see different directions this could be going. He may. I mean, I still think we're we're going to we still don't have Arizona. We still don't have Nevada. Um, right. I think Democrats will lose this seat, but it's not. Uh, but we don't have the governorship yet. Right. For Nevada. Yeah. Oh, no, we Wait. do. Democrats are losing have lost Nevada. So uh, it's really going to come down to uh, Georgia and um, Arizona, Arizona. Yeah. Joe, you're, um, I saw, I had a smile on my face reading this morning that um, uh, Lauren Boebert, who you pr- you profiled in your mm-hmm. big piece for Vanity Fair about a year ago, is struggling to hang on to her seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that will be a shock. Um, I mean, it's, it's being discussed around the uh, pundit class today, but this idea of, uh, you know, candid quality you know, we thought that it didn't matter on the right. You know, that was the whole kind of that's the Trump belief. You could you, know, you could go as low as you want and it won't matter. The, you know, Herschel Walker and being, you know, the latest greatest. But uh, if she's rejected in Colorado, that is like to me, that could be a tipping point, you know, uh, about for Trumpism, because she is really the well, she and Marjorie Taylor Greene were competing for, you know, queen of the nutballs. But um I I also want to ask this question of you guys. Even if Republicans gain uh, a little edge in one house, uh, they're not going to have, you know, the power they thought they were going to have. Where does that leave Merrick Garland in his investigations of Trump? I mean, he now has more political wind in his back than he might have otherwise. Well, I'll take this first. I've always been skeptical that he would pull the trigger on on an indictment, um, you know, just temperamentally, you know, somebody who positions themselves to be on the Supreme Court as he did when Obama was president is so careerist. And I don't say that negatively. I just mean, I just mean they're 
cautious. They're just they're institutionalists. And I just think he is programmed on a deep level to not take that historic step. Now, I could be totally wrong, of course, but I just think all signs are that, you know, the fact that he's moved this slowly shows that he's agonizing over this decision. Well, he was waiting for the election to be over because it wouldn't have been right to do it before. So now the Mm -hmm. question is, now that the election's over and he doesn't have like a gun at his head uh, from Kevin McCarthy or whatever, he can, maybe he can act, you know, in in the uh, service of justice. I still think he does it. Um, I I think, I don't think that Trump ever goes to jail. I think there's more of like a, a house arrest kind of thing. But I just, I don't see a world, look, look I mean, Fannie Willis in Georgia is going to go forward with her case, right? Tish James in New York is going to go forward with her case. I just don't see a world where Merrick Garland can't go forward with the fake elector, uh, the, not the fake electors, the um, the documents case. The documents case is like, it's just, you know, he still has more documents, mm-hmm. right? Like, I just don't, I don't see a world where they can't, where Merrick Garland is able to ignore the document case. I think he would like to, because this is a huge headache for him. But Armali, are you saying that he waits for these state cases to move forward? So no. it creates, no, no. I think that the DOJ is worried about these state cases because these are elected partisan officials. And I think that it, they're worried that it will open the door to other partisan, you know, then you could impeach, you know, the idea is like you could, you know, Texas uh, Paxton could uh, go after Biden for, mm-hmm. you know, something that's not a real thing. So I think he, it's going to pressure him to do it. But I just think the documents case, it's such a, if you don't prosecute stealing, you know, stealing or taking you know, classified information and treating it like it's the New York Post, then like, how do you, you know, I mean, it's like rule of law stuff. Well, this this circles back again to whether Trump's going to announce a run, right? So now his political fortunes are dented after what happened last night. DeSantis is, as you said, uh, waiting in the wings quietly to watch Trump, uh, you know, take his hits. And now what is his motivation for running for president if he thinks that, you know, does he want to go into mortal combat with DeSantis and lose? Probably not. But he also has to protect himself. And if he decides to run for president, that's one of his shields, right? Of course. I mean, that to me is the ultimate. I mean, that's the ultimate motivation is that he thinks it inoculates himself against prosecution. Right. That's what I think, too. That's actually what I heard from someone in Trump land today was that he thinks that that will keep him safe from the DOJ. Yeah, that's that's been the thing that has been the motivator from everyone you talked to in Trump land over the last, I don't know, six weeks. That that's what they're saying. It's a fascinating thing that you have people who are running for the highest office in order to run from the law. Before we wrap this up, Joe, I have to ask you as our resident Beto expert here. We've got so many experts on this <laughs> on this podcast this morning. How lucky. <laughs> you know, he's lost everything that he's run for. Yeah. Essentially. I know. It's sad. And yet I still saw a headline last night saying like, does he still have a future for the presidency? And I, I'm sort of like, what the fuck are you talking about? What do you mean? Does he still have a future? He can't. He can't I win know. anything. What's your What's your read on what's happening in that world? 
I don't know, but, you know, maybe there's a role for him in, like, the DNC or something. I mean, he's such a great motivator. He's a great messenger. Is he? Right? Is he? Well, he Joe, is. Joe, how could he you say that? He does rally the he base. Doesn't, but he doesn't. He didn't. If he rallied the well, base, they would vote the, for him. But he's in Texas. I mean, <laughs> I Texas think you was like trending him. the I, opposite way. No. But it didn't go that way. So how could you say he's a motivator right. or he gets out the base? He doesn't. Well, maybe he'll be a good adjunct professor at uh, University exactly. of Texas El Paso. Exactly. I, I wish uh, Joe that, and that, Beto are like Gen X kindred yes, spirits. I, I mean, in it. an alternate yeah, universe, don't they try would to be. Mess with, we're already like, you know, we, we already have uh, enough going against us, we poor Gen Xers. <laughs> I mean, give us a bone here. Jesus Christ. Sean Patrick Maloney, a little late breaking news. Bring uh, it. Sean, Sean Patrick Maloney just lo- has conceded. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. The DCCC, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, and a victory for Armandaire. Yeah. Mm. Oh, can I just call something out that's very cool to me as a Pennsylvanian? And I know there's like some adjacent Pennsylvania vibes. We on haven't this even talked podcast. about Fetterman. I know. Jesus. And um, Mastriano. And I mean, the, the Mastriano of it all is just like, it's so delicious to me. And uh, we've had Josh Shapiro on this podcast a couple of times. And uh, I know that people are already talking about him as sort of a, a rising star in the party. And it just v- felt very good to see in a few weeks of um, bad times for Jewish people to see a Jewish person win, mm-hmm. particularly against someone who has the views that Mastriano has. That feels very good this morning. Well, I will say I... When I did my DeSantis profile, I covered a rally that DeSantis did for Mastriano in mm. Pittsburgh. And the people at the Mastriano rally were, you know, they were, I just don't know where they crawled out of, but it was like, you know, I've been to Trump rallies and this was like even a step beyond the MAGA rallies, these people. So it is, it did renew my faith in, as someone who's buried um, to someone from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, um, <laughs> My yeah. wife, Jennifer, is uh, born and bred outside of Philly. It gave me new faith in the States. Can we just say, uh, let's just, you know, tip of the hat, give it up for America for rejecting some of these freaks, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a real moment where I was sitting here, are we about to lose this country to this kind of monster, you know? Joe, and- can I just make the pessimist the – yeah, argument uh, though is oh, how scary game. is it that how <laughs> take my man how scary is it though that these freaks got this close to power right that we're even having this conversation yeah but it's still really good I mean we're so lucky I mean I you know nobody needs to move to Europe like it's a win man it's a win I think that this buys some time for us to sort of get right as a country right like I think right. we're still. Mm-hmm reeling from all of the craziness on both sides. I think that everyone has sort of been deranged in the way that they've thought about Mm -hmm. politics over the last five years. And I'm never an optimist. If anyone has ever listened to this podcast, I'm always the doom and gloom and Joe is our bright ray of sunshine. But I feel like, okay, let's like shake the sillies out to borrow a phrase from Rafi, which is where you know I am, and like uh, get bring the, the Rafi, get, yeah, get get the like the derangement out of our brains for a second, and wait two years and and see where we are. Then I don't know that it will be any different. Obviously, these crazies, you know, still had so much traction over the last uh, election cycle, and that we got this close. Gabe, I agree with you, is a terrifying, terrifying prospect. But maybe we just needed to get it out of our system before things reset in in the next phase of life. I think, obviously, DeSantis 
who looks like the king at the end of today is capitalizing on Trumpism, but it's not Trumpism. It's something that's a little different and maybe it's maybe a hybrid between traditional conservative and full MAGA. And maybe Do that we would have just be time for thing. me to take the, the pulse of one one question from the group? Please. Obviously, yes. Let it. Biden 2024. Mm. Two questions. Should he run and does he run for real? Molly, I want you to answer this because I'm dying to hear your response here. <laughs> um, I don't. This is a hard. It's hard. It's a hard question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think it's going to be hard for him not to run because I think that they feel that he really overperformed these midterms. So it would be hard to make a case that someone shouldn't run when they did so well. And I mean, remember, he did better than Obama did on those midterms. Now, that said, he may decide that he wants a break, you know, that Trump is out of the picture and he can take a break. So, I mean, I feel like there's like a 50 percent chance where we see uh, uh, open primaries on both sides. Like I've I've thought that for a while, that there's a world in which like if Trump, you know, if Trump and DeSantis manage to sort of wreck each other, that you really do see open primaries on both sides. Um, it's anybody's guess. There's also, I feel like, one scenario where somebody runs against, sees Biden as weak and one candidate runs against him and that candidate wins because the rest of the party goes to Biden, you know, like Obama in 2008. Like, I feel like there's that there's that scenario, too. Mm-hmm. Who else is running? You could say, I mean, it would be probably someone who is a little Gavin rogue. Newsom. Right. Gavin. So it would have to be Gavin. I don't think it would be someone like Shapiro or Whitmer. Buttigieg or Pete. Yeah, no. Yeah, but Mayor Pete, though, is working in that administration. I know, but, so he's yeah. not going to do it. Right. Yeah. So it would yeah. have to be someone who – it would have to be someone with a big ego. Yeah. Might. Right. Well, let me just uh, throw in a little for Joe here. You know, he's shown some incredible political skills over the last few months. Everybody thinks that he's, you know – He's he's gotten a because the economy his numbers are down. I get that, and he's not, um, you know, a, a young spry vision of uh, the future. But he is has been politically adept in a way that I think has surprised me at least. I mean, he broke the gridlock in his own party with Mansion and got that Inflation Reduction Act, which you know. I don't know how much that was a part of this midterm thing, but he has been strategic. He is smart, you know, and he rope-a-dopes like no politician I've seen. He's like, he's back. Everybody thinks he's done. How many times have we declared him done? And then he comes out and he does a thing, you know, and he did it again. So as much as I don't see him as the future of the Democratic Party, you know, don't count him out, right? Right. Um, And then you get to a world, let's just do some, you know, 2024 fan fiction, Uh, Trump's in shackles and DeSantis, that oppo research that Gabe mentioned has uh, kneecapped him somehow. And then suddenly Joe's looking good, you know. So as we said last week on this podcast, nobody knows nothing. We don't know. The future cannot be predicted. It could go in any number of directions. Um, But as we stand here today, uh, we are surprised once again by American politics. Well, there's no people we'd rather be surprised with than our good friends, Molly and Gabe, and obviously you, Joe. Thank you all so much for doing this election day. Very early recap, or early for me, recap. (laughs) And we will see you back here next week. Thanks, guys. Over and out.
and if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.